truth matters. As, as you heard Josh read from Second Peter this morning, uh, there were several words that, several times you heard that phrase, true knowledge. And true knowledge, truth, changes things. It changes how we live. It changes how we act. It changes how we react. It changes our desires. If I were to tell you this morning that, or let's just take, uh, for example, uh, a hypothetical. Let's say that I believed uh, that somebody or somebody gave me and convinced me that I got a vaccine that was going to work against COVID-19. It would change the way that I lived. It would change the things that I do. It would change my uh, heart. It would change the heaviness that I feel. As I was uh, Monday called to the hospital because Julie was passing away, I wanted nothing more than to be able to go up to um, the conference room at the ICU where Rick was awaiting the passing of his wife to be able to go up into comfort. Some change, a vaccine, would have allowed to do that. Another thing I think I would do, I would have done this week if there would have been a, if I knew I had a vaccine for this virus, is I think I would go over to Alexian Village and to hug people's neck who haven't been able to be around people from the outside for some time. Another example that I think of um, where truth matters, and there's all sorts of examples, but I want to use these two, is think if you were uh, in a concentration camp uh, in Nazi Germany. And think if you got the knowledge and you knew for sure that you were going to be freed in a day or two days or maybe in a matter of hours, I think it would change your day. To where you might have, you would have felt the bondage and the oppression of being in that situation, but the truth of freedom, of coming freedom, of being set free, would change how you served out those last minutes, hours, or days in that concentration camp. There would be a hope, there would be a security, and that hope and security would change the way you acted. In many ways, Peter is driving home this same point. As Peter is writing this letter, one of the things he is confronting is he is confronting that a false knowledge, a false knowledge has led to a group of people inside the church living in such a way that is wrong. It has changed their desires. It's changed the way that they are living. Another way to say this is bad eschatology has implications or bad thoughts about the end time, wrong thinking about uh, the coming of Christ has implications. And here, Peter's not talking about eschatological systems. He's talking about the return of Christ. If they don't believe in Christ's return, if there's no belief in Christ's judgment, it should change the way that you live. And Peter is seeing this being worked out in the life of folks in and around the church. And today, what we're going to see, what Peter is telling us and writing us is that true knowledge, 
true knowledge has implications as well. It changes us. It changes us. And I want to read verses 5 through 8 again. It says, Now this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be fruitful? Or do you want to be unfruitful? Do you want to be useful in the kingdom? Or do you want to be useless in the kingdom? I I don't know about you, but my heart just flutters with the desire to be fruitful and useful for the kingdom. And so there's this temptation when we see and we hear this to look at this list of things that we are supposed to do in verses 5, 6, and 7. There's a temptation to look at this and, and to have uh, these wrong thoughts. They're right thoughts, but if they're not anchored in the right thing, they're wrong thoughts. And so one of the thoughts as we look at this list, and as we look at all the things that we are to do, we are to add, and we are to supply, and we are to, to, to work that we look at this list and there's a temptation for us to say that I'm not strong enough to do this. Man, that is a lot of work and I am not strong enough. And we're going to see this morning the good news that Peter is going to, to relay to us in his writing. The good news this morning is that God is the one who supplies the power to enable you to do these things. So you don't have to be Strong enough. I think the second temptation, at least the one that I feel, is uh, there are many times that as I try to, to do these things, to try to, to, to have self-control, perseverance and godliness, as I try these things, I get tired and I get worn out and this temptation comes inside of me to despair by thinking, I just can't be good enough. I mean, just take one of these. In verse 5, there's this word, it's moral excellence. And if you were to look up um, at verse 3, uh, it's the same word relating to Jesus here. Jesus is moral excellence. And, and so then Peter calls us to this moral excellence. And if we just think about living in that way, if we think about this long enough and hard enough, it will wear us out. And we will just get bogged down by, I just can't do this. And there is great news this morning for you in this text as we are going to to see and as we're going to unpack. And it's this. God is not looking at this list for us as some kind of moral checklist. What He's doing is He's providing us this list. And if we understand God and Christ rightly, if we understand Um, what we are to do and how we are to live and the position that we are in. When we understand this, what we'll begin to see is that this list 
is more about joyful striving towards holiness than some kind of moral checklist. And I want us to understand this and to see this. And if we understand this, and as we see this from these verses this morning, one of the things that it's going to do is it's just going to provide a a power to unlock fruitful, useful living that is full of joy as we make mistakes along the way. So this morning... We're not going to jump into the list per se this morning. We're going to look at that more um, next week. But what I want you to see this morning is that the power, what is vital to understanding, the the power and the position that we need in order to to go into this list and not turn it into some moral do's and don'ts that we get this in verse 3 and 4. In fact, look at verse 5 just real quick. It starts off with this, now for this very reason also. And so what Peter is telling us is that based upon what I just told you in verse 3 and 4, now for this very reason, because of this, because of this knowledge that you gained, now do this. So many times in our Christian life, we flip it around. And thank the Lord that Peter does not leave us here you know in some ways in my own mind uh, these verses and what we're studying this morning is a little bit like what we see in philippians where god says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and if we were left there we'd be left in a uh uh-oh but the next verse is for god is at work in you and we need that foundation and able to work out our fear and trembling. Today, in this, in these verses, we see something very similar, except Peter goes through painstaking detail uh, to lay out, to lay out for us how God works in us to produce fruit. And ultimately, what we're going to see is that there is a in the life of a Christian. The inability to produce fruit or the fruitlessness or uselessness in our life is going to be in direct correlation with where our desires are. Look just for a moment at the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That what Peter is going to drive us to is that there is a pull in this world. There is a pull in the life of a Christian. Uh, There is something that is pulling us away from the gospel. It's pulling us away from Christ. And true knowledge gives us the power to overcome the pull of the world and the corruption of the world. That seeing and knowing Christ will produce a stronger desire for godliness than any, any empty promise that this world can give us. So as we unpack these verses, I think, I hope, I pray that it will encourage you as much as it has encouraged me personally this week. Now, as we look at these verses, verse 3 through 11 is all one sentence in Greek. Um, and so what you have is a list of phrases and it's and it's all tied together. 
Uh, and upon first, second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth reading, it seems a little jarbled. And so what I'm hoping this morning is I, that I can easily kind of untangle it for you so that you can see the picture and that you can see the beauty of this passage. And so let me start with reading verse 3 again. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And so the first thing that we have to know and that we have to decide is, who is the He in verse 3? Notice, His divine power has granted to us everything in life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now I think, That the he in this verse is Jesus. If you look up at verse 2, it says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. So it could be God and of Jesus our Lord. But I think that it leans more towards that Peter in verse 3 and 4 is talking about Christ. That he is doing this. If you read verse 16 in this first chapter. Notice, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This word for power in verse 16 is the same word for power in verse 4, and I think that what you're going to see, um, or in verse 3, and I think what you're going to see is that there are some parallels to 3 and 4 to 16 and below. And so for these reasons, I take it as Peter is talking about Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus has granted us, all believers... Jesus has granted or given us all that we need. And what I want you to see here, and I am so thankful to the Lord for this, that Jesus has given us all we need pertaining to life and godliness, that what He hasn't done is left it to us to just conjure up or self-will all that we need for life and godliness. One of the things that I think about is, is football starting. I played football in high school and was uh, an undersized uh, linebacker my senior year. And at that position, you're supposed to be aggressive and violent. And so I would listen to angry music before football games. And it would get me pumped up and I wouldn't talk to anybody. And I was, I was all meaned up, if that's even a phrase. Thank the Lord... That's not what God expects of us. It's not what Jesus is expecting of us, that we just conjure this up. But the key that we need to see here is that Jesus has given us, has granted us everything that we need to be fruitful and useful in His kingdom. Notice it says that Jesus has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now where it says life here, I take this as meaning eternal life. That Jesus has given us all that we need pertaining to eternal life. And this eternal life is not just something that is in the future, but that as a believer, when you are given eternal life, you are given eternal life now. And you live that out. And it's not like it will be when we live forever in His kingdom and with Him, but you have that eternal life now. Notice also, notice also, not only does He give us all that we need pertaining to life, eternal life, but also to godliness. And this word in the original language means good worship. It carries the connotation of of piety. And so what we see is that, again, 
This is something that is looking towards the future, that when the ultimate consummation happens and we are together with our Savior forever, that we will live out, we will be as pious as we can be, and that that worship will be the best that it can be. But this, this gift that is future-oriented is still, again, it is ours now as well. And so the key is that He's given us all things pertaining to this future life and this future godliness. And notice, this verse also tells us how He does that. He gives us all of this through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and grace. I'm sorry, not grace. Through His own glory and excellence. So that is how He has done this. And we know, church, that when He's talking about that He has given us this through this knowledge This is not talking about mere head knowledge. This is not talking about just facts of Jesus. This is this experiential, this knowing. The the example that I use, I think the best example that we can think of is when it's talking about, or when the Scripture, uh, the account of Saul on his way to persecute the church. And when Saul was on the road and was blinded by the light and Jesus spoke to him, Saul didn't just walk away saying, I learned some facts about Jesus today. Saul's life was changed. When Saul talked about seeing the risen Lord, it changed everything about him. This knowledge changed him. His eyes were opened and his heart leapt inside of him and his His deepest needs, his deepest longings were satisfied. And isn't this what happens at our salvation as well? Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day? It wasn't that all of a sudden you just agreed with facts. The eyes of your heart were were opened and you saw Jesus for what, for who he is. And we were drawn to him like a little speck of metal to the largest magnet in the world. Nowhere else we could be. Nothing else would satisfy us but our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice, so the how is through knowledge of the one who called us, which is Jesus. And and notice specifically here, by his own glory and excellence. And when it talks about glory here, let's go back to verse 16 again. And I just love this. In verse 16 through uh, the the end of the chapter, uh, Peter is talking about the transfiguration of Christ when he saw Jesus transfigured in front of him. And and listen, listen for this idea of glory. For we did not follow clearly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such as utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance from the heavens and were with Him on the holy mountain. Again, this idea of seeing the glory of God just gripped Peter. And I'm going to use a 
a silly example, uh, but it was really the, the, the only thing that I kept thinking about when I was thinking about glory. When I was in my late teens or maybe early 20s, uh, some friends of mine who I grew up with uh, went out to Los Angeles to see, uh, it was really just for the road trip. Uh, I didn't know my friend's uncle, and we went out to my friend's uncle's house in, uh, in Los Angeles, and so literally took canned goods and chocolate chip cookies that my grandmother made and took off across the country. And one of the things that we were wanting to do is we thought it would be nice because we would be close to stop by the Grand Canyon, and literally we planned, ah, we'll just kind of drive through. We didn't know if you could kind of drive like you're coming up the W Road and just kind of look, oh, that's cool, and keep going. But this amazing thing happened. All of us had seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. All of us had probably seen a a TV show uh, where the Grand Canyon was displayed. But something happened when I got out of that car and approached the edge of that canyon, and I was just overwhelmed with the majesty and glory of the Grand Canyon. Probably for the first time in this whole trip, uh, these four uh, crazy kids said nothing. Because we were sitting there experiencing the glory of the Grand Canyon together. We had heard stories. We had seen pictures. But now, now we were experiencing this ourselves. Notice in verse 16 again. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What had maybe been a tale in our mind at the edge of that cliff became glory and majesty. Brothers and sisters, we were made to respond to glory. We were made that when we truly see Christ in His glory, that everything in our heart and in our soul and in our life is attracted to that. That's what we were made for. Not only does Peter mention glory here, but he also mentions excellence. And the word here for excellence means moral excellence. It means virtue. And one of the things that always amazes me is you all know the statement from C.S. Lewis where You've got to do something with Jesus. He's either lunatic, liar, or Lord. And one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, secular, atheist scholars who are looking at Jesus, many of them um, don't want to reject Jesus as a lunatic or a liar. They, they, they don't like those categories. And one of the reasons is they begin reading uh, about what Jesus uh, said, as they begin reading about his life and, and, and seeing him in the scriptures, although they may not believe uh, everything that the Bible says or who the Bible says that he is, you hear even in scholars that they admire this uh, mythical figure, as they would call him. That there's something about this moral excellence that is attractive to them. And so they want to call him a great teacher or a great rabbi. Um, when I was in college, I took a film class uh, that, for two weeks uh, in a J term that was called Christ in Film. And what was fascinating about this is that this was secular films, uh, and it was laying out kind of the, the Christ narrative in these films. And, and it was unintentional, I think, by the... Um, uh, the, the writers of the script and, and everything. But what had 
what has become in our collective conscience is the beauty of the idea of somebody who is morally upright, living and dying for someone, taking someone's place to whom they were not viewed as worthy by the world and the world standards. So what I'm saying is, is that even the secular world, that even though they don't believe in him, I think in all of us, there is a when we look at Christ, we see this moral excellence. When we look at Christ, we see this sinless savior who lived in such a way that we see the beauty and the excellence and the majesty of how he lives and it draws us in. And as Peter is addressing here, as Peter is writing, he's saying that this divine power, he's given us everything to life and godliness through this knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. And then notice the next phrase, for by these, that word is plural, these, and by these it's meant for by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious promises. Again, if we were to look um, back down at the the verses uh, that I referenced a minute ago in in 16 uh, through 19, we see, uh, and I'm not going to read them all again, but we see there in 16, Peter is talking about seeing the glory of God on the mount as he's transfigured. And then look at verse 19 with me. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. That when Peter saw the glory of Jesus Christ... What he is writing us here is that the prophetic word was made more sure. In verse 4, he says it's by these, by his own glory and by his own excellence, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that when we see Jesus for who he is, his precious and magnificent promises are made sure. And we know this, right? From the very beginning of time, when sin entered into the world, the promise of God was this. Eve, one day one will come from you and it will crush the head of that serpent. As we follow along through the Old Testament, what we see is the need for our sins to be atoned for. The need... For a sacrifice. And as we keep going, we see these promises that are made to, to Israel that one day, one day, God will provide a way um, where you will commune with God. His word will be put in your heart. One day, God says to his people, there will be a day where we will be reunited, reconciled forever in. God's kingdom for eternity. And what we see on this side of the cross is that the way that those precious promises have been fulfilled is that Jesus came and fulfilled all those promises as the sinless Savior. He came and He died so that we might live. He took on our sin and He changed our destiny. And so in one way, this promise was delivered the way of reconciliation into the kingdom of God. And in another way, another thing that's going on is that things are not yet like they will be. That final kingdom is not yet 
ushered in. There is another day. And so the other thing that we see when we look at Jesus, we see a promise delivered and a promise unfolding. And we can be assured because not because of what you and I are going to do or have done or can do, but because of the one who has made the promise, this glorious and excellent Jesus. So when we see him, when we see him, these promises are sure. Then notice. These promises are sure. These promises are delivered. So that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Now, what in the world does Peter mean here? That, by, that from them, from them, from those promises, that you have become partakers of the divine nature. This is not meaning, as some heresy has come out of this text, meaning that uh, when you become a Christian, that you become God. It's not what is going on here. Uh, it's, it's also not, I don't think, talking about... So what I do think it's talking about is that we become like Him, that we will be like Him. And the way that we become like Him is because we have escaped the lust of the world. But when I read this passage, I do not think here of final day going to heaven, that being the escape from the lust of the world. And that being the time that we... Um, start becoming like him. And the reason that I I think this and come to this conclusion is look at chapter 2, verse 20. Same words here. It's talking about people um, who um, uh, you'll hear. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. And so what Peter is saying is that these people, they have already escaped. Right now, they have already escaped. And now, now, they are again entangled in them. So when we go back to this verse, and we, it's the exact same words, so that by them, you may become, may, be, may become partakers of the divine natures, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, I think that what Peter is saying is that you who are Christians, you have escaped. You are escaping. You are escaping from the corruption that is in the world. And so when he talks about, when he talks about that you have become like him, that you've become partakers in the divine nature, this is not a foreign concept to the New Testament. And I just want to real briefly walk you through just a couple of passages and starting in the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 29. We know these verses. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So those He predestined, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that takes place over our lifetime. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that we are being transformed into the same image of our Lord from glory to glory. 
And again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. And part of that new creatureliness is that we are becoming more and more like our Savior. And maybe the one that most of you are familiar with in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it is not and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And this verse lets us know that we are becoming more and more like Him. And when we see Him on that final day, we will be like Him. So this is a thing now. You are becoming partakers of His divine glory, that we are becoming more like Him. And the only way that we do this is by escaping the lust and the corruption that is in this world. And so this is what I want you to see. This is so vitally important to this passage. Do you see that the way of escaping the corruption of this world, the way of doing this, is that we fight desire with desire. This is so vital to the Christian life. God doesn't call us to battle bad or evil desires just by white-knuckling it or gritting our teeth. What God has given us in Christ and in the promises of Christ is, should be a desire for greater things. Now let me tell you where this doesn't work. I wish it worked this way. I wish my desire for broccoli were stronger than my desire for cheesecake. That would be great, right? But it doesn't work that way. My taste buds are for cheesecake over broccoli every day. And if yours are not, you're weird. In the Christian life, God doesn't leave us in that same vein. What God does for us is that we taste and we see Christ and His goodness and His glory. We taste and we see the promises of God. We see His kingdom partially now, knowing what is yet to be fulfilled. We see that and we taste it and we see the glory of Christ and it draws us in. And that desire is greater and better than anything this life has to offer. That's how we escape the corruption of the flesh. And Peter is talking to a group of people who are being carried away by the lust of the flesh following this false doctrine. And he is saying, don't do it. He is saying there is something much greater. There is something better. Our taste buds have changed. If we are in Christ, our taste buds have changed. And so I want to end just real briefly saying a few words. So when we look next week, starting next week at this list and beyond, yes, yes, Peter is calling us to work. Peter is calling us to strive. Peter is calling us to do something. But the striving should be joyful. It shouldn't be begrudging. It shouldn't be downtrodden. The striving should be 
joyful in the strength that God supplies by looking at His Son and being, being encouraged that we are becoming more like Him and being engulfed like sitting at the Grand Canyon, being engulfed in who Christ is. And so that striving is a joyful striving. But I also know and want to address the reality that sometimes our desire is weak. Sometimes our desire is weak. And so I just want to real briefly, hopefully be helpful to you this morning and address how in the world can we get into joyful striving when our desire is weak. And maybe our desire for the things of the world have, 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 have overshadowed our desire for the things of the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that we, I think that we overcome this is how we read our Bibles. How we read our Bibles. And, you know, I, I shamefully admit, uh, not shamefully admit the first thing, it's the second thing I'm going to shamefully admit. But one of the things that I have been involved with over this year is um, uh, there's a certain Bible reading plan that I'm doing, and it's, it's reading a lot of the Bible every day. And what I shamefully admit is that literally there are days that my Bible reading is more for it to check off that I have read these verses so that I can get all the way through my Bible reading plan. That's not... Now, sometimes God is good, and even when I am checking off my list, something jumps off the page, and God just draws me into the beauty of, of who He is and who His Son is. But there's quite a bit of difference when I go to the, to the Word in the same Bible reading plan that I prepare my heart and mind and go to the Word like it's a treasure hunt. Like it's a treasure hunt to see the beauty of Christ. Such a different thing. That, that I'm not going to let this Scripture go until I see something about Christ that, that speaks to my desire and changes my heart and changes my disposition. And when I do this, it leads to then, at that point, those desires, then I search the Scriptures. And many of these I have memorized because it's at that point when we see Christ for who He is, when we see God for the God of the universe and, and the gloriousness of, of who He is, then what happens is that the promises from this Word begin to give me life and fuel me, fuel me in this passion as I try to be a person who is useful in the kingdom and fruitful. So even this week, even this week, um, this week's, uh, and I'm not going to go into all the things with, I'm not going to bore you with my pity party, uh, but this week there were several things that tempted to knock me off of my. Um, pedestal, um, knock me, knock the, the pedestal out from under me. And, um, and I can always tell that my frustration grows and I'm shorter with the kids, with the temper than I need to be and this sort of thing. And, and, and as I was preparing for this sermon, one of the, some of the verses that started coming to mind that really began to sink its roots deep down in me and was so helpful to me, uh, to, to get back on track and to get back into the the stream in which I needed to be in, where I'm I'm getting uh, poured into by the Lord. Where two verses, one in the book of Psalms, where it says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." Huh. 
so good for me this week. When there were a lot of things going around that didn't seem good, being reminded the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Another one in the book of Psalms as well. Look to the hills. That's where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. So good. So good. So the goal for us is to look at this book, to see Christ, and to joy, if that's a word, if I can turn that into a verb, to joy in His promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of our desires are too weak. But thanks be to You, thanks be to You, that You are granting us all that we need. God, I pray. God, I know. I know. That I'm not the only one this week. God, I pray that as we look at our life, at our Christian life, and God, as we know what we are called to, we know how we're called to act, we know how we're called to react, that God, for many of us who look at that and it seems like a daunting task, God, I pray that you would grant us the freedom and the joy that comes with knowing that you supply what we need and you give us the desire to seek first the kingdom of God. God, do that in our hearts and in our minds this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to...